The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The fact that this series of crimes is composed of some of the boldest, most startling flagration in the criminal annals that they have extended over a period of many months, and that the perpetrator has, so far, not only accomplished his ends, but successfully escaped and blinded the police, would seem to indicate that he is a criminal of no mean ability, but one of the most remarkable ghouls known to the dearth history of any section of the country. From the Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. Cuddle up a little closer, love Welcome to episode 55, Damnable and Hellish Crimes, Second Cast, Part 3 of my trilogy on The Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. I'm your host, Jill, and hoping all is going well with you, and I'm looking forward to exploring the best true crime books with you. Thank you for showing support for the podcast at my merch store on Spreadshop and for the five-star reviews. And please keep the suggestions for books coming in. I have great plans for 2023. Shout out to Costa Rica. You have blown my mind. In the United States, Muskegee, Oklahoma, you are still leading the pack. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you are closing in. And Sydney, Australia, you are moving up fast. Keep up the great work, murder bookies. You cannot know how much I appreciate you. I see you as you hear me all over the world. It is just surreal. So I know you're in anticipation overload for this finale. So a very quick recap. In last episode 54, The Remarkable Ghoul on the Midnight Assassin, set in late 19th century Austin, Texas. We see America's first serial killer terrorizing and then murdering black servant women and now upper class white women. Why our killer doesn't care what race his victims are, in this era, set 20 years after the Civil War, racism is an integral part of life. In Austin, an overwhelming fear penetrates the lives of all of the citizens, as newly reelected Mayor John Robertson brings in private detectives, hires temporary police, and tears his hair out trying to capture this fiend. And murder victim, 17-year-old Eula Phillips, has a secret life, according to former assistant U.S. Marshal Thomas Bales, that may have led to damnable and hellish crimes. Eula Burdett Phillips has always attracted detention. Descended from one of Texas' original pioneer families, her grandfather helped finance the Texas Army during the War for Independence. Her father, Thomas Burdett, was a prosperous farmer who married Alice Missouri Eans of a well-to-do Austin family. Then, in 1880, Alice and Thomas scandalously divorced, with Alice taking their daughters 
Eula, and Alma with her to live in Austin. Alma was the plain one of the sisters, while Eula was gorgeous, known for twirling her parasol above her head. No one was crazier about Eula than Jimmy Phillips. A nice-looking young man, a tad on the portly side, with blue eyes and a handlebar mustache. Jimmy courted Eula, taking her on buggy rides. And uh, they must have been some buggy rides because she became pregnant. Hastily married, the newlyweds lived with Jimmy's parents in their wing of the spacious home built by Jimmy's architect father. A whirlwind of ladies' teas, church socials, dining above the privilege in the best restaurants ensued. And in early 1884, Eula and Jimmy's son, Tom, was born, with Eula seemingly blissful. Only nothing is ever what it seems. Behind the scenes, she suffered from melancholy, desperately unhappy. When Jimmy came home from the saloons, he was often drunk, obnoxious, and abusive. A friend recounted how Jimmy had thrown a cup of coffee at Eula, shattering the cup, and Alma saw him throw a glass of milk at her. One night, a drunk Jimmy began screaming at Eula and his sister, Adelia, who locked themselves in a room to get away from him. Kicking the door in, the women scrambled out the window and ran, calling to a police officer to save them. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Phillips did try to get their son out of the saloons, sending the young family to live on a farm with friends for a stay. There, Jimmy promised he'd stay sober on returning to Austin, but soon he was back at it. Yet, Eula seemed to keep a stiff upper lip, enduring with a smile, and now she was axed to death and left next to the outhouse. According to Thomas Bales, who now worked as the assistant chief of the Capital Detective Association, who had so far made their mark collecting unpaid bills, Bales met with Austin's Marshal Lucy, brothers, Mayor John Robertson and DA James Robertson, and lead members of the Citizens Committee on Safety, explaining that between November and December 1885, so in the weeks right before the Christmas murders, Eula had been taking a carriage to the seedier side of the city using a shawl to disguise herself. She went to a boarding house owned by one May Tobin, a name known by everybody around the table as their eyes widened. May's boarding house was actually a discreet hotel where Austin businessmen conducted affairs with women or high-paid call girls. Rooms were rented by the hour or the half hour, and there was a back door in case immediate escape was necessary. May told Bales about Eula's comings and goings. And then Thomas Bales dropped the bombshell. Christmas Eve, Eula had showed up at May's asking for a room, being told there was no vacancy. Eula left, and an hour later, she was dead. At the police station with her attorney, W.W. Woods, May Tobins was questioned, agreeing to tell everything she knew about Eula's murder in exchange for immunity. The deal was made. She confirmed Eula's visiting her place, confirming she came in the afternoons or evenings, and had met at least three different lovers. May did not know their names, and yes, she had come in on Christmas Eve very briefly, then left. 
scandal erupts. Next, Thomas Bales outlined his theory. Jimmy was drinking at the saloon and returned home drunk, falling asleep. Totally fed up, Eula left, going to Tobin's, finding no room available, and returned home to a now-awake Jimmy, who knew she was being unfaithful. He let her get ready for bed, and once asleep, Jimmy retrieved an axe, releasing all of his rage and shame, smashing it into his wife's head. He dragged her body to the backyard. Back in their bedroom, Jimmy hit himself over the head with an axe, making this a copycat killing. Fierce debate erupts. Had Tobit and Bales made up the story to get the reward money? Was Bales looking to unravel this murder to make a big name for his detective agency? Then one of the men recalled the odd behavior of the prison bloodhound, Bob, who had been barking at Jimmy. Oh my God, it all came together. The reason that Bob found no trail down the alley was because there was no trail away from the house, but inside the house instead. Bob followed the scent from Eula's body in the backyard to Jimmy in the bedroom. This was the trail. That's why Bob went after Jimmy. Excitement ensued. Eula had not been a victim of the Midnight Assassin but was a victim of domestic violence murdered by her intoxicated husband. The Phillips hearing was held before Justice of the Peace, William Vaughn Rosenberg, with Thomas Bales, the star witness. An arrest warrant was issued for Jimmy Phillips for the crime of exoricide, the murder of one's wife, punishable by hanging. Because Jimmy was unable to speak or walk due to his supposed self-inflicted wounds, a police officer was left to guard him at his house. This is a very Victorian era, so any hint of sexual scandal would ultimately ruin a woman's reputation for life. If you've ever watched Bridgerton, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When news broke of Jimmy's arrest and that a high society lady and mother, like Eula, had been having affairs at some house of ill repute, the city lost its collective mind. Was she seeking revenge on Jimmy for abuse? Had she taken money from her lovers? Was she funding her escape from a terrible marriage? And, oh my God, who were her lovers? It's like a flock of owls descended on Austin. Who, who, who? Names were suggested by the unceasing grinding rumor mill. Mortified, James Phillips Sr., Jimmy's dad, gave an interview to the Daily Statesman denying Eula had ever snuck out to meet other men, although he admitted that his son did go on drinking sprees. James Sr. explained that after Eula and Jimmy's visit with relatives, Jimmy promised to clean himself up. He got a job building that new fireman's hall, and Jimmy would give his pay to Eula so he wouldn't spend it at the saloons. And this was very important. There wasn't any actual evidence that tied Jimmy to his wife's death. Did his interview help? Not sure, but James did try to defend his family. And James Sr. was correct. There is really no other evidence against Jimmy except for the dog being weird. And the press starts asking questions. 
Couldn't Bob have been following Eula's blood scent and not Jimmy? Could anyone actually hit themselves that hard on the head with an axe? Now, I wondered about that myself. Could a slight less than 100 pounds, think 45 kilograms, Eula have struck Jimmy herself? But no matter, Chairman of the Citizens Committee on Safety, Alexander P. Woolridge, was not backing down and raised funds to pay an Austin attorney with an impeccable reputation, Taylor Moore, to assist District Attorney James Robertson as a special prosecutor. A malleable fellow, in an interview right after the Christmas attacks, Taylor Moore had told the St. Louis Republican that he thought the killer was some maniac subject to random impulses to attack and murder women. Now, Taylor Moore was ready to prosecute Jimmy Phillips. But the unasked question hung over all of this. If Jimmy killed Eula, who killed Susan Hancock? You've heard all the stories about the life and crimes of Ted Bundy, but have you heard the real-life accounts from his survivors, the attorneys who prosecuted him, the psychiatrist who analyzed him, or the sheriff who jailed him? If you're interested in the thoughts and feelings of people surrounding the Ted Bundy case and taking a deep dive into the psychology behind his actions, then we've got you covered. Crime authors and Ted Bundy experts E.J. Hammond and Fabian Richard provide you with the insights into the sights and sounds of the women Bundy brutalized, the officials involved in his apprehension, and the people who ensure he never saw another day of freedom in their new book, Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. You'll see previously unseen photographs provided by the people who knew Ted, learned previously unknown information about the steps that led Bundy to his downfall in Florida's electric chair, and delve into the details that few have accessed in the years since Bundy's execution. If this book sounds like something you or a loved one would enjoy, go to Amazon and search for Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. It would be criminal not to. The answer came a few weeks later at another behind-the-closed-door hearing held by Justice Von Rosenberg. Thomas Bales was back, announcing that his Capital Detective Association had evidence that the killer of Susan Hancock was her husband, Moses. People froze, just shocked, senseless. So on Christmas Eve, both Eula and Susan were killed around the same time by their husbands. Well, today we know it's always the husband, right? But here you actually do need evidence. What was the evidence of this? What motive could Moses Hancock have to kill Susan? So a little about Susan Hancock. She lived a quiet life as a mother, as a wife, reading books, writing letters, wearing modest clothing, was not ostentatious. Definitely no parasol twirling going on here. And there's no indication of marital strife. Press editorials insisted, quote, that some substantial reasoning must be given to suggest that in this murder-ridden community, Mr. Hancock was the author of this damnable and hellish crime that sent his wife to the grave, end quote. A statement by Susan Hancock's sister, Mrs. Mary Falwell of Waco, Texas, was the evidence. Mary Falwell claimed that Susan and Moses' marriage was not all tranquility and contentment. Susan was uneasy over Moses' increased drinking, 
and they had not been happy together in the last two or three years. And then the trigger. Susan began making plans to secretly leave Austin and move to Waco with their daughters. Mary Falwell then produced a letter Susan wrote back in November or December 1885, which read, quote, Dear husband, I have lived with you for 18 years and have always tried to make you a good wife and help you all I could. I have loved you and followed you day and night, but you won't quit whiskey, and I am so nervous I can't stand it. It almost kills me for you to drink, and Lena, the eldest daughter, is almost crazy and will lose her mind. If I was to do anything to disgrace you or our children, you would have quit me long ago. Take a good look at yourself. Write to me at Waco, and I will answer every letter. Your wife until death, Sue Hancock, end quote. So is this the smoking gun? Hmm. Thomas Bale suggests that Moses saw this letter, became furious, and decided to kill Susan before she left him, and deliberately made it look like this killer had done it, another copycat killer in the works. Well, I'll be damned, murder bookies. So which seems more realistic? On the same night, two angry drunken husbands independently decide to kill their offending wives and make it look like the crazy lunatic running around killing black serving women was the culprit, or that these white women were in fact victims of the crazy lunatic who murdered the wives with axes in the scope of an hour. Tough one, right? With the letter in evidence, some residents concluded that Moses Hancock had probably killed Susan. Stories arose going back to the 1870s that had Moses attacking Susan with her running to a neighbor terrified. Another was that Susan spoke to her minister in San Antonio, concerned that her husband might kill her in one of his drunk binges. Haggard, a jailed Moses, was still handsome, with his hair pulled back above piercing blue eyes. Reluctant to speak, given the awful gossip, Moses insisted that he had never read the letter from Susan. A reporter pressed him. Did he have a drinking problem? Moses admitted to a few binges, some lasting days. Was it possible he'd been abusive to his wife during these binges? He denied it and said there were people who would say he and Susan got along very well. Well, to be fair, that's really not the most robust defense. Yet, there were citizens who thought Moses was innocent, and Jimmy Phillips too. Meanwhile, Austin's white women and black women remain terrified. Gun sales continue to be through the roof, with apothecaries selling nerve tonics to soothe women's jitters. As the masses reeled, Marshall Lucy kept patrols going, including around the state lunatic asylum, and Sergeant Chenneville purchased two more bloodhounds sworn trackers. After revisiting previous suspects, newspapers were filled with speculation that the Midnight Assassin might be a, quote, figure straight out of the weird legends of the Dark Ages when ghosts and vampires gutted their fiendish appetites with horrors indescribable, end quote. Werewolf. They, they think it's a werewolf. Yeah. Then came a twist. January 31st, 100 miles south in San Antonio, the body of Patty Scott, a 28-year-old black servant, was found in her quarters. 
Divorcing, the obvious suspect was her husband, William, who was described in the San Antonio papers as having a violent reputation and was known to abuse Patty. Yet, there was no evidence tying William to Patty's death. With no arrest, the speculation ran rampant that Austin's midnight assassin had come to San Antonio. The New York Times published a comparison of Patty Scott's injuries with those of the Austin victims. Quote, there was the same deadly cut across the base of her skull that three Austin victims bore, and the blow on the crown of her head was identical with that in the Austin tragedies. The general belief is that the deed was done by the Austin murderer. This belief has created a perfect panic among the females, end quote, of San Antonio. Happy to be sharing the limelight with San Antonio, Austin's Mayor Robertson was relieved, and now he could focus on the 50th anniversary of Texas's independence. Bread and circuses keep them coming. As we begin part five, February 1886 to May 1888. Texas District Judge A.S. Wright said Jimmy Phillips' trial for May 24, 1886. But out of the blue, the fake Pinkertons found a new suspect in Eula's death. They had received a telegram from a, quote, prominent citizen alleging that one of the men Eula had secretly met at May Tobin's house of assignation was a distinguished politician, a prominent state officer, and an active candidate for the governorship of Texas, end quote. My, my, my. Only one man in Texas fit that description. Gubernatorial candidate, William J. Swain. Wowza. Now, William J. Swain vehemently denied even knowing Eula Phillips, thundering he would find the person issuing this underhanded slander and hold him to account in court. All over this, Swain's staff soon announced that the telegram in question came from Waco, Texas, which just happened to be the home of political rival Saul Ross, who had just declared his candidacy for governor against Swain. Now, Saul Ross's biography isn't that impressive. A timid man, he had no original ideas on how to improve Texas. Ross himself doubted that he'd be able to beat William J. Swain. Ross's campaign manager, George Clark, hotly denied any involvement with the telegram, and Waco newspapers supported Ross's character and spread the innuendos about Swain and Eula, a war of words erupting. Governor Ireland was forced to postpone his endorsement of Swain, preferring to wait until after the Jimmy Phillips trial was over, because if acquitted, Swain would still be a suspect. So cue the dramatic music. Horrified at the mudslinging that the fake Pinkertons caused, Mayor Robertson rued the day he had accidentally sent that telegram to them. Determined to defend the reputation of Austin, the mayor took action getting the Sunday laws passed. They required saloons to be closed on Sundays, with businesses closed from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., giving residents a chance to, quote, read the Bible and improve their Christian attitude, end quote. At the state lunatic asylum, Dr. Denton worked to allay fears that it was a dangerous or insecure place fraught with escaping patients. And he said only one patient had escaped in the last 12 months, 
a harmless fellow. And Dr. Denton was dedicated to his humane reforms. In February, something odd occurred, though. Mysteriously, Dr. Denton went to court, requesting that a city resident suffering from a grave psychological malady be involuntarily committed. And it was his son-in-law, Dr. James P. Givens, the asylum's 34-year-old assistant superintendent. Remember that wedding occurred at the asylum? Well, request granted, Denton transferred his son-in-law to the North Texas Lunatic Asylum in Terrell, Texas. Why would you send your son-in-law away from home? And we just don't know because there were no more records found on Dr. Givens. Skip Hollinsworth speculates that he possibly contracted syphilis, then untreatable, and a major source of insanity. Was Denton trying to hide this from the public? Was he avoiding chatter that at the new moon, his son-in-law turned into a murderous maniac? Well, whatever, Denton did succeed, and this was kept very quiet. But Dr. Denton wasn't home free. His reforms to turn the state lunatic asylum into a stress-free recovery institution filled with compassion and support was crushed. Other Texas city newspapers celebrated that they had lost their bids to have the state asylum built in their cities. Austin had the madmen, not them. I wonder if they just jinxed themselves. Hmm. With the press drumming up expectations for a, quote, gothic melodrama of deception, sexual suspense, and gruesome murder, end quote, the Jimmy Phillips trial began packed with spectators. Prosecutor James Robertson and Tyler Moore painted Eula Phillips as a compulsive cheater with a jealous alcoholic husband. The defense team of William Walton and John Hancock, not related to Moses, countered presenting jurors with many alternative killers from ex-lovers to Negro gangs. Witnesses testified to Jimmy's worries about Eula and then Eula's concerns about Jimmy's drinking and abuse. Jimmy's sister, Adelia, gave powerful testimony that Eula was afraid of Jimmy. So afraid, she had hidden with a poor Black woman, Fanny Whipple, which caused an audible <gasps> from the spectators. So Eula had been fearful enough to stay in a Negro shanty? Oof. Adelia admitted that Eula had been an untrue wife with at least two lovers. But then the star witness, Mae Tobin, was sworn in, with people leaning forward in their seats anticipating. May basically told the same story she told Thomas Bales, but this time May began naming Eula's lovers. John T. Dickinson, who held an influential position in state government, Benjamin M. Baker, the head of the Texas public school system, and William D. Shelley, a clerk in the state controller's office. More gasping. But May did not name William Swain, but Eula had visited with two other men that May didn't know. May said Eula came to her house an hour before her death but May didn't know if a man accompanied her in her carriage or not. The press had a field day. Quote, high state officials given away and others shaking in their boots, end quote, 
as the accused men denied it all, saying their political enemies had paid Tobin to lie. The defense barely crossed Tobin, but did tear into the prosecution for failing to produce any evidence that Jimmy knew about Eula's secrets or that he'd killed her. Three doctors then testified that Jimmy was physically unable to wound himself that severely with an axe. Then the defense introduced a new suspect, George McCrutchen. Eula and Jimmy visited with George when they went to his farm for Jimmy to dry out. The theory, George and Eula had a fling. Jealous, angry, George came to Austin and killed Eula. When asked, quote, is it true you were in the habit of having carnal intercourse with Eula Phillips while she lived at your house? End quote. McCutcheon heatedly responded, I declined to answer the question. Now, was it too insulting or was he just ducking the answer? Now, George's alibi. On Christmas Eve, he was attending a stag party near his home with other men who had seen him there. However, McCutcheon also admitted having a horse that was capable of carrying him from his farm to the Phillips house and back before dawn. The one piece of evidence they did have, Jimmy's footprint. Jimmy's footprint was compared to the bloody one found in his house, and Jimmy's foot was smaller. Prosecutor Moore told the judge that the demonstration was flawed because Jimmy was probably carrying Eula which would cause his print to spread. William Walton, who weighed like 175 pounds, which would be like 80 kilograms, jumped on Jimmy's back (laughs) and repeated the demonstration again and again. Jimmy's print was too small. Victory point defense. In closing arguments, Walton and Hancock conceded that if the footprint was not a match, the jury had to acquit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Hmm. A day and a half later, the jury found Jimmy unanimously guilty of second-degree uxoricide and sentenced him to seven years in the state prison. Well, that really shocked me, as well as those in the court. And seven years? Seven years for a murder conviction? Well, that shocked me, too. The press speculated that jurors had been bribed, but for a guilty verdict. I mean, doesn't it usually work that you try to bribe the jury for a not guilty verdict? I don't know. People suspected that secret information about Jimmy and Eula had been told to the jury on the sly, information that they just couldn't ignore. Others just chalked it up to Taylor Moore's powerful oration, which had just swayed the jury, not the evidence. And of course, an appeal was filed. Swain never spoke to the press, going on the campaign trail, putting his heart into it. But the rumors about him and Eula stuck like glue. Had Swain found the writer of the telegram like he swore that he would? No, he had not. And by the time the Democratic Convention was held in August, Swain had lost major support. After more robust speeches, applause, and hushed whispers, Swain was swamped by Sol Ross, the new governor. Swain never ran for public office again. Former Governor Ireland was defeated in his race for the U.S. Senate. And D.A. Robertson now focused on trying Moses Hancock for the murder of Susan. Throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall, Austin was quiet. 
Wild West shows with Buffalo Bill Cody came and went. Horse races between Pony Express riders went off. A war dance by Indians in full regalia occurred. A reenactment of the Deadwood stagecoach ambush and gut fight was held. Yeah, yeah, Deadwood was a real thing. Yeah. On November 10th, 1886, the Court of Appeals ruled on the Jimmy Phillips conviction, agreeing the prosecution had not presented proof Jimmy knew of Eula's extramarital affairs, and the jury judgment was reversed and remanded for a new trial. Jimmy was released on bail. In March 1887, the district attorney dismissed charges against Jimmy Phillips. Okay, so my gut instinct that Jimmy was not the killer rang true. Did you feel it? Did you have that same sense? But you really need to read the book to get this whole picture. June brought the trial of Moses Hancock. U.S. Attorney Jack Evans was assisting Roberts in this go-round. Witnesses testified that Moses had changed his story when retelling what happened that Christmas Eve night. A key witness was Joseph Gassaway hired by Marshal Lucy to work undercover, keeping his eye on Moses, who was out on bail. Joseph Gassaway testified that during a camping trip, Moses got very drunk, telling him he wanted to, quote, hang up Thomas Bales for creating this whole mess. He said Moses told him, them damn sons of bitches down in Austin are trying to work up something on me, but they have not got anything, nor never will, out of me, end quote. Gassaway asked Moses if his daughters might give him away, with Moses answering that he'd flee to Brazil and disappear. Moses' attorney, John Hancock, same guy from the Phillips case, took Moses' case pro bono. He was so incensed by this indictment. His defense partner was Bethel Coopwood, a camel rancher, as you did in 1887, raising camels. Sure. Hancock and Coopwood presented Moses as a man who turned to liquor after his wife's gruesome murder. He had told conflicting stories because he was drunk, and Gassaway was making up nonsense wanting to collect the reward money. Moses' daughter, Lena, testified for her dad, saying her parents were happily married in spite of her father's drinking. While dad got angry, didn't everyone? And her father had never laid a hand on her mother. She also said her mother had not worked up the courage to give the letter she'd written about moving to Waco to her father. Instead, her mother had tucked it away where her aunt had found it. The prosecution was simply wrong. There was no motive for her father to kill her mother. Then came a surprise witness who rocked the courtroom, Travis County Sheriff Malcolm Hornsby. The sheriff recounted an event from about five weeks after the Christmas Eve murder on February 9th, 1886. Sheriff Deputy William Bracken was called to a saloon in Masontown, a black community just east of Austin. Bracken was told about Nathan Elgin, a young, drunk, 20-something-year-old black man, quote, who was raising Hades in general, end quote. Arguing with a black woman, Elgin pushed her down, dragged her into a nearby house, and began assaulting her. Bracken arrived, trying to handcuff him, but Elgin resisted, striking Bracken in the head. Bracken pulled his pistol, shooting Elgin dead. Sheriff Hornsby testified that Elgin was missing a little toe on his right foot, which had struck a chord with him. Where had he seen that before? And then it came to him. 
outside of Eula and Jimmy's room, that bloody footprint. It had been missing a toe. Suspicious, Hornsby had a cast of Elgin's foot made, which was compared to the Phillips foot. And Hornsby told a reeling courtroom that the prints matched. And the footprints discovered in the alley after 11-year-old Mary Ramey was killed had a toe missing, but that that footprint had not been preserved. Hornsby believed it matched Elgin. So I was pissed. Why the hell hadn't Sheriff Hornsby spoken up before this? Why are we hearing this at Moses' trial? And who is this guy, Nathan Elgin? So Nathan was born and raised in Austin, and he had caused all kinds of trouble in his teens. Back in July 1881, a fight broke out between him and another guy, Green Alexander. Cursing, yelling, Alexander pulled his gun, shooting three times at Elgin. And all of this is going down across the street from the governor's mansion. Uh, Alexander missed, by the way. A year later, Elkin was arrested and jailed briefly after he threatened to kill a deputy sheriff. But after this stint in jail, Elgin had no more legal issues. He married, he had two children, and he was working as a cook in a really good restaurant. So is Elgin the midnight assassin? Well, hold on. Another witness, Harry White, who's a deputy U.S. marshal, had studied and measured the footprints at Phillips' home and had not specifically mentioned the toe missing during Jimmy's trial. He now said, quote, the impression of the heels and toes were so light, they were indistinct, end quote. Notary public Thomas Wheelis had measured the bloody footprints at the Phillips too, and never mentioned a missing toe. But the footprint behind the alley at the weed house where Rebecca and Mary had been attacked, Wheelis said, quote, five toes were seen, with one of those toes particularly shaped, end quote. All right, there's some agreement with Hornsby, there's some disagreement. But the next day, the Daily Statesman reported, quote, the rumors related to Elgin and crimes are false in every particular, end quote. After a few days of deliberation, the jury were eight to three for acquittal and conviction, with one juror uncertain, and a mistrial was declared. So what do you make of this? We have a nine-toed serial killer running around? About 250 miles, or 402 kilometers, away up in Gainesville, north of Austin, 18-year-old Jeannie Watkins was visiting a friend, Mamie Bostwick. Both were daughters of wealthy cattlemen, handsome girls, popular, and white. Jeannie was attending Dallas High School, Mamie a Tennessee all-girls boarding school. They had everything in the world to look forward to, which seems to be the kiss of death lately, right? Middle of the night, Mamie's mother heard a shuffling sound coming out of her daughter's room. Checking on the girls, she entered a nightmare, seeing a man leaping from the window. Mamie and Jeannie, their faces gaping blood-soaked wounds. Mamie was hit on the right, under her eye, and in the temple. Jeannie was struck over the right eye, crushing her forehead. Mrs. Bostwick's screaming alerted the neighbors who came running. Every Gainesville police officer came to the scene, one with a bloodhound who went on the chase, and again that came to an abrupt halt. Mamie Bostwick was conscious, but so injured she couldn't remember anything. 
Jeannie Watkins would live for another 24 hours before dying. Gainesville shops were closed the next morning. A citizens meeting was held at City Hall, immediately starting a reward fund. All attending men were deputized by the Gainesville Sheriff. Spreading out across the countryside, some inspected the train depot for any suspicious bloody persons, while others searched homes door to door. Fort Worth sent more bloodhounds who sniffed larger footprints, but once again, too many had trampled the crime scene to get a scent. All right, I'm shouting while I'm reading this. Stop trampling the crime scenes. A jury of inquest would rule that Jeannie had been killed by a party or parties unknown, and Jeannie's body was returned to Dallas for burial by train with scores of people lined up along the route to pay their respects to the young lady. Over the next few days, the Gainesville PD questioned two Black men and seven Mexicans, with all released as Texans locked doors and double-secured windows from Gainesville to Dallas to Fort Worth. Reporters arrived, quote, two young ladies horribly mangled while asleep. A fiend from the depths of Hades murders girls in their beds, end quote. The Daily Statesman compared the grievous injuries inflicted in Gainesville with those of Austin's victims. Since Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was now published, the killer was called the Texas Jekyll, with a very upset Governor Saul Ross adding $1,000 to the Gainesville Reward Fund. Tips came in about violent stonemasons, suspicious traveling salesmen, and of course, Indians with no arrest. Back in Austin, Mayor Robinson was silent on any connection between his city and the Gainesville attacks. When the Texas Medical Association arrived for its annual conference, the mayor pontificated positively about Austin's orderly and prosperous growth, which was quicker than Atlanta, the greatest city in the South. He tried, okay? He really did. But just now is when the news broke that he'd accidentally hired the fake Pinkertons back in 1886 not the famous National Detective Agency. It came out that the William Pinkerton received a letter from either the Phillips or Hancock families asking for an update, which let the cat out of the bag, and that this error had cost the taxpayers $3,328.27. Pressure mounting, Mayor Robinson announced he was not running for a re-election in December, and was resuming his law practice. Rival Joseph Nally would be elected in a landslide. Marshal Lucy continued his mounted patrols, who constantly rode through the city on horseback. By spring 1888, the brand new Driscoll Hotel was thriving, the Opera House expanded its performances, and new businesses were opening. After six more weeks, the new Capitol building opened with a formal dedication six bands playing the chorus singing patriotic songs. 50,000 visitors attended the five-day event, and some shared terrifying stories of the killer who still haunted the city. Where had he gone? Then, in September, came news that in the Whitechapel section of London, 4,295 miles away, so roughly 7,000 kilometers, a woman had her throat cut left in bloody butchery, as part six begins. September 1888, 
to August 1896. This time it's eight years. The dead woman's name was Mary Ann Polly Nichols, age 43, sister, wife, mother of five, and in 1888, a London prostitute who was often seen begging for food. Her wounds were so deep she had nearly been decapitated. Found with her skirt pushed up, 37 stab wounds to her stomach and genitals were visible. The killer had worn a leather apron, was short and heavy set. The news published, quote, Jewish immigrant named Pizer, who was a slip maker by trade and was known to walk the Whitechapel streets, end quote, was wanted. Chilled, Austin residents noted a distinct similarity between the London killing and their murders, as Irene Cross's murderer was described as short and heavy by her nephew. September 8th came another London murder, Annie Chapman, age 48. Annie was the eldest of five siblings, a wife, a mother, a master crocheter who supplemented her income with casual prostitution. Found with a deep knife wound to the neck, repeated stabbings to the abdomen, her small intestines were ripped out and thrown on the ground, her uterus missing. Which reminds me a little bit of the first Austin killing of Molly Smith. Hmm. All right, news came that a London paper supposedly received a letter from the killer, signed Jack the Ripper, setting off a panic in the East End. Saturating Whitechapel with officers and bloodhounds, alleys were patrolled in earnest, with the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee volunteers searching for Jack with no luck. September 30th, 1888. Just after midnight, a woman was found, her neck slashed open to the left. She was Elizabeth Stride, or Long Liz, as her friends called her. Not mutilated like the others, her murder was likely interrupted. Less than an hour later, Catherine Eddowes, age 46, was found with her throat cut, her face, stomach, and pelvis slashed. Her intestines, uterus, and a left kidney were missing. Another similarity to Austin's killer, attacks in rapid succession this being called a double event. Eddowes, orphaned at 15, had lived with various family members, had four children with her common-law husband. She took to drinking, left her family, began another common-law relationship with John Kelly, who swore she never made her living by, quote, immoral purposes, end quote. London investigated a number of suspects, a mad Polish hairdresser, Jewish paupers, a Russian con man, an abortionist, an actor playing Jekyll and Hyde at London's Lyceum Theatre, too. The Daily Statesman wrote convincingly that Jack the Ripper was the midnight assassin. Quote, the particular mutilation of the bodies, the silence in which they are slain, no outcry, the impenetrable mystery that envelops the assassin, all tend to make a case almost entirely similar to the series of Austin women murders. End quote. Headlines America's Whitechapel. Is the London monster from Texas? The Constitution explained quote, the fact that he's no longer at work in Texas argues his presence somewhere else. His particular line of work is executed precisely in the same manner as is now going on in London. End quote. But there are distinctive differences too. The weapons used in Austin were weapons of opportunity, axes, 
knives, steel rods, bricks. Only a knife had been used in London. While butchered, the Texas victims did not have their organs stolen and no communication appeared from the Texas killer if Jack's letters were authentic. And killers do not replicate their crimes with 100% accuracy, and some deliberately do change their methodology to defer suspicion. And then, December 14, 1888, Whitechapel brought more carnage. 25-year-old Mary Kelly was found completely eviscerated. Her face was cut, her throat severed to the spine. All of her abdominal organs were missing. And this murder coincided with the New York Society of Medical Jurisprudence meeting, a convention of the city's most esteemed lawyers and doctors. And while they normally discuss technical issues in medical testimony and trials, the Whitechapel murders were on the agenda and presented by Dr. Charles Edward Spicka, the most famous alienist in America. So alienist, think criminal psychologists of the 19th century variety. Raised in New York City, Dr. Spitzka attended medical school at the universities of Leipzig and Vienna. Quite the semester abroad. Professor of nervous and mental disease back in New York, in 1881, he examined presidential assassin Charles Goute, who killed American President James Garfield. Right, so this guy has some chops for a 19th century psychiatrist. Red hair brushed back. Dr. Spitzka came into the hall ready to speak. He prefaced his remarks by calling to mind ancient mass murderers, Roman Emperor Tiberius, who kept the heads of slaughtered children, the Marquis de Sade, who tortured women for sexual pleasure, lending his name to sadism, and a young Parisian man, Louis Mencelou, who enticed a young girl with flowers before butchering her in 1880. Touching on the recent Jack the Ripper case, he hypothesized that Jack had honed his skills somewhere before turning them on London. And that place had to be Austin, Texas. Dr. Spitzka presented what a century later would be called a criminal profile. The killer had, quote, Herculean strength, a great body agility, a strange weird expression of the eye, a man who had contracted no healthy relationships, who is in his own heart isolated from the rest of the world as the rest of mankind is repelled by him, end quote. And no one knew where this man was today. He could even be sitting in this very room. Very few chuckled. The London Metropolitan Police went so far as to track down some of Buffalo Bill's Wild West cowboys who had come to England in 1887 to perform at the American Expedition a trade fair to promote American advancement. Performers included Annie Oakley, 90 real Indians, 180 horses, 18 buffalo, 10 elk, 5 steer, and a partridge in a pear tree. 30,000 people attended, including Queen Victoria, who was celebrating her Golden Jubilee, her first public appearance since Prince Albert's death 25 years earlier. And detectives investigated, but without luck. Jack the Ripper would disappear, but he's never completely left us. In 2019, researchers Jerry Luhanelanium and David Miller ran genetic tests on a silk shawl stained with blood and semen that the investigators say was found next to the body of the killer's fourth victim, Catherine Eddowes. 
DNA analysis led to Aaron Kosminski, a 19th century Polish barber, and a Jack the Ripper suspect at the time. However, the science of this conclusion has been questioned as Catherine Eddowes Scarf, used to locate and test the DNA, was acquired at an auction with numerous questions concerning contamination. You know, I get that. I really, really do. But what is the likelihood that mitochondrial DNA matching Aaron Kosminski's descendants accidentally came into contact with this scarf over the years? I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch for me. But coincidence happened, and that would really be wild. As for Austin, three years had passed now without incident. Where had the killer gone? In three years, could the midnight assassin maim and murder in Austin, slip down to San Antonio, then Gainesville, only to show up a year later in Whitechapel, London? Was it possible? I think it is unlikely that these killers are one and the same. In Austin, Deputy Attorney Robertson gave up on prosecuting Moses Hancock, never retrying him. Walter Spencer and Anastasio Martinez, once suspects, remained in Austin, Anastasio still at the asylum. Oliver Townsend, the chicken thief, was sent to prison on a trumped-up robbery charge, which was the last straw for Doc Woods, who packed up and got out of Austin. Moses Hancock left too, selling his house and ironically moved to Waco. Jimmy Phillips and his son Tom moved to Georgetown, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers away, taking a job at a chair factory where he was plagued by headaches. He remarried and raised four more children. William Swain moved to Houston, never resuming his political career, never free from the rumors that he had been Eula Phillips's lover. New Mayor Joseph Nally kicked May Tobin out of the city. Her townhouse was burned to the ground behind her. Nally was moving forward, saying, quote, Crimes of a serious nature are almost always totally unknown in our mists. Hmm. A sense of security dwells among the humblest as well as the highest, end quote. Okay, but women are still buying sleeping tonics to settle their nerves trying to get sleep at night, and men are loading shotguns and rifles before closing their eyes. Citizen Committee of Safety leader Alexander Woolridge had an idea to build a dam on the Colorado River, which would have a dynamo to produce electricity, which would power electric streetcars and streetlights that would benefit everybody. Mayor Nally argued against it as it was just too expensive, but the Board of Trade thought it was a brilliant idea. Voting Nally out of office, and voting in building contractor John McDonald, who would see it built. He authorized the Austin Water and Light Company to set up 25 electric lamps on 20 to 30 foot high poles to illuminate the downtown area. Did people support the hydroelectric dam or the lighting that would allow them to walk unconcerned for the first time in five years? Hmm. These arc lamps with very tall towers were spaced to cover as much of the city as possible. And on May 5th, 1895, the switch was thrown with a, quote, sudden blinding flash and the town was in a blaze of white light that hid the rays of moonlight with its brilliancy, end quote. Startled, 
People bound out of their homes with a huge whoop whoop of relief and happiness echoing. Reporters wrote that Austin was no longer, quote, seeped in utter darkness and the realization of Austin's gold dream, end quote, was upon them. Okay, if you haven't noticed, Americans love to complain. So some didn't like the buzzing sound the lights made or the ash that fell from them. Chicken farmers feel that hens would lay eggs around the clock, causing them to drop dead. I laughed a lot at that one. But the negativity was ignored. Austin changed its official nickname from the City of the Violent Crown, an homage to the beautiful sunsets, to the City of Eternal Moonlight. In 1898, Marshal Lucy retired, and the new Marshal, Robert Thorpe, told Sergeant Geneville it was time to ride off into the sunset. So Geneville did, retiring and going to work for the Merchant Police and Southern Detective Agency with his bloodhounds. Did they ever track anyone? I, I wonder. Dr. Denton left the state lunatic asylum, opening his own private Austin Sanitarium for nervous and mental diseases for wealthy women who suffered from maladies, anywhere from headaches to hysteria. Alienists continued discussing, quote, the servant girl assassinations, a prime example of the damage that a morally insane man can inflict on society in his abnormal conduct. End quote. Moral insanity stemming from, quote, intermarriage among criminals and drunkards, a childhood injury, such as a blow to the head, or mental shock that destroyed part of the brain, causing impaired nervous tissue damage. End quote. Some of that is actually accurate. In 1896, German alienist Richard von Croft Ebbing published his book, Psychopathia Sexualis first academic study of sexual perversion of pedophiles, sadists, rapists, sadomasochists, etc., etc. After Jack the Ripper, Croft Ebbing updated his work to include lust mord or lust murder, men who found physical pleasure by murder followed by mutilation, quote, a state of exaltation, an intense excitation of the entire psychomotor sphere, end quote. Alienists pondered possible ways to identify these monsters, something we're still pondering. Five months after the lights went on in Austin, Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, also known as H.H. Holmes, a wealthy, educated graduate of the University of Michigan's medical school, was accused of murdering at least 20 women, some of whom stayed at his hotel, called the Murder Castle today, when visiting Chicago's World Fair. Victims died by asphyxia, locked in airless rooms, or having gas piped inside the airtight chambers. He'd then whisk them down a chute into his dungeon of death, dissecting them, dissolving them in acid baths or in his crematorium, and even sold their skeletons to medical schools. Holmes was arrested in Boston for insurance fraud as the heinous story of his crimes were revealed. Holmes was later executed in Philadelphia. While surviving, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson were unable to care for themselves and were probably taken in by the county poor farm and were likely buried in unmarked graves. Rebecca Ramey recovered enough to live with her daughter Minnie, and she passed away in 1910, the last of the midnight assassin victims. Consequences. 
Sadly, the killings left the white population fearful and distrustful of the black population, helping to usher in Jim Crow laws early, separating black and white lives. After the only black alderman, Albert Carrington, lost to a white man in the election of 1885, another black man wasn't elected to city council until 1971. That's 86 years later. The city continued to grow, spreading out past arc lights on tall poles. During World War II, a switch was installed that enabled the city's electric department, in case of a Nazi or Japanese air raid, which could shut everything off in one swoop. Yet, the lamps kept burning as the night is dark and full of terrors. (laughs) I had to. Published in 2015, Skip Hollinsworth writes, that a few landmarks from 1885 remain. The Granite State Capitol Building, the Governor's Mansion, the Driscoll Hotel, the Austin State Hospital, once the Lunatic Asylum, and I'm glad that name has passed on into history, and the Opera House. There remain 15 moonlight towers, now rather useless. And in the 1970s, the remaining arc electrical lights were made into National Historical Landmarks, without any mention of the murder that was their reason for being. They are just quaint, nostalgic remnants of days gone by. Hollinsworth's research shows that H.H.'s home was not in Austin in December 1884. He did find that Eugene Burt, you know, the son of Dr. William Burt, if you remember, he was the kid who found the axe at the Susan Hancock murder. Yeah. Eugene killed his wife and children with a hatchet and threw them into the basement. Eugene Burt was arrested, tried, and convicted for the murders. So had Eugene been the midnight assassin? No, he was a a kid. He was not going to be able to do any of that. And as an adult, he's shown signs of marked depravity. And our midnight assassin is a clever, organized guy working towards his end goal. This was a successful serial killer with consistency across the crime scenes that linked the assaults and murders to a single individual. I'd classify him as a hedonist thrill killer, doing it for the adrenaline rush that he gets from killing, indulging his rage. Most thrill killers are sadistic, torturing their victims to feed on their fear. This guy, he kills quickly and brutally and then sits back and feeds off the city's fear and anxiety and terror, moving through society and lapping it up. This is it for him, toying with people and politicians. I think he attended every meeting and was probably on the Citizens Committee of Safety, which provided him cover for wandering the alleys in the dark night, honing in on a new victim. He made it look like robbery was the motivation, saying such to living witnesses, which was ludicrous because servant women were paid so little, they had nothing of value to steal, certainly not money. And this spotlights that he is not from the lower social classes at all. But he did allow us this glimpse behind that cutout mask of his. The Midnight Assassin is in good physical shape because he exerts control over his body, stealthily, choosing to walk barefoot in December and January in the cold. Did they ever check the bottom of any male feet looking for someone with significant calluses or cuts or even partial frostbite. Some evidence indicates that the women had probably been sexually assaulted. 
I think this was calculated, adding additional shock value in this conservative era, revealing a deeper level of depravity. He uses the sexual assaults as a weapon to brutalize the women, but I don't think he is primarily lust-driven. He is rage-driven, and the rape and murders creates what he feeds on, unmitigated terror. As with other serial killers, he began with assaults and then escalated into murder, needing more depravity to feed that euphoric rush. Although killing is definitely his intention, he doesn't bring a weapon, an axe or a brick. A weapon of opportunity is found at the crime scene. Starting with Easy, he enters the flimsy servant quarters where he immediately and brutally bludgeons the target, the woman, who is struck multiple times while allowing witnesses to live, whether young children or impaired, injured adults. Clever, he leaves scant evidence, just a few footprints, and then vanishes into the dark. He thrives on reading the newspaper stories about himself, the terror, the panic, the fear he's causing, wallowing in feelings of superiority, something that was absent as he grew up as a child. His upbringing was less than ideal. Perhaps his father was cold, incommunicative, harsh, abusive towards his mother, who endured suffering weekly, fearing her loss of a provider or being killed. She was probably ineffective in protecting her son. And he felt so helpless over the situation, which filled him with rage. Rage he internalized, too fearful to show it. His mother's weakness, tolerance of the terrible way his father behaved, filled our midnight assassin with disgust and loathing of women who were unworthy and pathetic in his eyes. And he'd never be fearful again. Satisfaction grows as he follows the antics of law enforcement and private detectives as they bobble the investigation arresting the wrong people. Why did the attack cease briefly after each arrest? To let the fear subside, to let a false sense of normalcy return, only to utterly snatch it away with another vile murder. He's definitely playing games, tweaking their noses at their failures. He's assisted by this era of innocent people, hampered by their inability to imagine true evil until Jack the Ripper pulled the blinders off and allowed them to see a glimmer of a repeat ritualistic murder fashioned to satisfy some inner psychological need and pathological hatred of women. Self-control is all important in this man who feeds on violence fueled by rage. Intelligent, he relishes stumping the police almost as much as the killing itself, completely confident that he wasn't going to be caught because he'd never be a suspect. He was that guy in old-time Austin, generally liked by all, not really that well-known, moving seamlessly through the various groups of the day, family, work, church, society. He attacked Black serving women because they were vulnerable, not necessarily Black, although he is a racist, a product of the culture of 20 years after the end of the Civil War. He got satisfaction from murdering any race or class of women because he did kill Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock, not their husbands. As he improved his technique, he needed more challenging victims, and two white women in more secure homes upped the ante. There was grave oversight in not exploring white society for suspects, prejudice impacting investigation, imagination failing to grasp a new type of monster. 
their institutions of power were fixated when we know psychopathy has no racial barriers. Without a keen eye looking for all possible suspects from all avenues, the midnight assassin serial killer case has never been solved. And that's why it's a mystery. And we love a good mystery. That concludes my trilogy on The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth on this unsolved murder spree from 139 years ago. It happened, and remembering the victims is important. There were Molly Smith, killed. Walter Spencer, seriously wounded. Clara Strand and Christine Martinson, attacked and terrorized. Eliza Shelley and Irene Cross, murdered. Mary Ramey, taken and killed. Her mother, Rebecca Ramey, seriously wounded. Gracie Vance and Orange Washington, killed. Lucinda Boddy and Patsy Gibson, grievously wounded. And Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock, murdered. In San Antonio, Patty Scott was killed. And in Gainesville, Amy Bostwick was assaulted. Jeannie Watkins, beaten to death. They mattered, and they still do. And my next book is The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. It is a wonderfully laid out story that makes me think of the possibility for so many lives if a killer wasn't lurking in the shadows. Blonde, 19-year-old Brooke Weiberger was raised in a close-knit religious family. On a summer morning in Oregon, while cleaning lampposts at an apartment complex managed by her sister, Brooke vanished. One moment she was there, and the next moment, all that were left of her were her flip-flops and the echo of a scream. Her family suffered not knowing Brooke's fate. The investigation was energetic and turned over every rock, but it would take years to find out what happened to Brooke and a number of other young women. I always say, read the book, and this is no exception. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershopbookclub.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Check out my blog and my merch store on Spreadshop. Happy reading, murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information for the Midnight Assassin trilogy are found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Husena, lyrics by Otto Harbach.